Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. My job is driving me crazy. Ah, sorry. Do you hate your job or does your job hate you? Sorry. Sorry, I can't find the answer to the question I heard. My career crisis. Hello and welcome to My Career Crisis. I'm Ruth Barnes and this is an extended episode looking at happiness in the workplace. It's a new year and a new dawn for many of us. So this episode is called Change Your Attitude, Not Your Job. Is it possible to turn the Monday morning blues to Monday morning high fives? The show is divided into two parts. First up, we hear from listener Caroline, who got in touch with us to say she has never been happy in any of her jobs as an accountant, and she's at a loss as to what to do. Our resident careers coach, Sue Ahern, and I chat with Caroline. We see if we can offer her some advice. Taxidermy, maybe? Then I'm joined by Richard Boston, a psychologist who specialises in team performance and leadership. He gives Caroline and me some excellent advice about how to be more positive at work, how to fix difficult relationships with your boss, and I've had plenty of those, and take back control of the relationships we have with the people who lead us. It's a really useful listen, so do stick around for that. But first, let's get into our crisis. My career crisis. Hi, Sue from Creative People, our resident expert. Um, have you ever hated work? Um, hated is true, too strong a word, but I really empathise with what you were saying about the Sunday night syndrome. I think if you're in a job where on a Sunday night you're really thinking, I don't want to get up tomorrow, I don't want to go to that job, then there's something wrong and you, you should do something about it. But I think if you leave it until you really hate something, you're probably not going to be in the right headspace to get a, a, a new opportunity and interview well and all that sort of stuff. Caroline, welcome to the studio. Hi. Hello. Thanks for coming in to share your crisis with us. So this episode is called I've Never Liked Work. And when <laughs> I said that to you, you just went, yeah, that's that's me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've been in an accountancy career, which is interesting because it's not like you've been chopping and changing careers. You obviously wanted to be an accountant and this is a career that you followed. And now you find yourself in a rut. Just maybe talk us up to this this point. Um, when you said about the Sunday night blues, I completely uh, resonated with that. Um, I have maybe not Sunday night blues. It kind of goes to Sunday morning. Um, I went into the world of accountancy after it being the first job that I managed to get when I left school because I didn't do a degree because I wasn't really sure what I wanted to um, study in. I really enjoyed creative things like art and textiles when I was 
at that age. Um, but it just kind of, you end up getting sucked into it and studying and you kind of think, well, okay, maybe I can um, carry this on. I can be good at this. But then it gets to a point where you are in a rut and you've just been doing it for so long. You don't have the motivation to go, oh, I want to get better at this. I want to explore this further. I, I've got to the point where I want to explore something else completely different, but I don't know how to get out of it. Well, obviously you're not happy, so mm. you've got to do something about that. And I do sympathise with this idea that you feel you were channelled in a way, you know. But I thought you made a very good, brave decision not to go to university. I'm, 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 I am a fan, obviously, of people going to university if that's really what they want to do. But, it, but in Britain particularly, it's becoming incredibly expensive and I wish people would make more decisions like it's not the right thing for me. I think that's perfectly valid. And and it's interesting, first of all, if you are a trained accountant holding down a responsible job, that is an incredibly transferable skill. And I would be not so willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater because there's a couple of myths going on here. The idea that there's um, this wonderful creative upland that we can go to. There are very few jobs where you are just being creative all day long. Most jobs, you have to earn money and most jobs... Even if, if it's a creative business, you have to earn money doing that business. And you have fantastic business skills. So as a sort of a thought, just, just to give you for a minute, would it be better if you use those skills in a creative industry? Because every creative industry needs accountants. They need <laughs> business people. But you could be perhaps more part of producing that creative output while using the undoubtable skill that you already have. Well, how does that sound? I've considered that. And I mean, like I've, I've spent a long time considering all the options. Um, and I have, with my current role, I've uh, kind of made a sidestep. So I've kind of gone into a not-for-profit design sort of sector, which... I thought it would be great, but I'm very much feeling quite left out and not involved because I'm not involved with the outputs of it. But n not like you said, because you, you, you've said that I am involved with the out could be involved with the outputs of, of a job. Because I'm just thinking of jobs like, so in a television and film, you have production accountants. Mm. Okay, and they are very much involved with the production. You have a production manager who's not only involved with the um, m uh, making the budgets and things like that, but they're also involved with the logistics of making sure things are in the right place for filming and that sort of stuff. So there's a whole area there that I think you'd be very experienced for yeah. um, to to explore. I, I'm not trying to kid, uh, you know, to, to say to anybody, don't follow your dream. But I think if you do, you have to be realistic about it. And, and but I don't mean to by that to pour cold water on something. But for every de decision that you make, there are consequences. So, for example, I'm imagining that you have a reasonable standard of living. Hmm. Okay. So if you want to do something much more creative, one of the first consequences might be that you have to go back down a few pegs yeah. and you have to earn less money. So how comfortable are you with that? I have considered it. It depends like how much it would be that I'd have to drop down. And I think from initial searching of things that sound more interesting to me, they are quite considerably a lot less. So it's hard to kind of, it would be nice to go, I could go a little bit lower, but it's finding that middle ground of being able to have enough money to cover everything I need it to cover. But see, that's when, 
this sort of dream comes into focus is mm. how much do I want it? What yeah. is the dream, Caroline? That is the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, what What are you doing that's not? Uh, let's park the accounting. Yeah. What else do you do with your time? What do you What do you love? I mean, you You say you've been kind of crafty and creative. What mm. What do you do? What do you do to kind of scratch that itch? Well, I I've started crocheting and. Um, I spend a lot of time looking at things rather than actually doing things. So I will be looking at things like Pinterest, which is a terrible uh, <laughs> time drain. <laughs> um, but And I've started to go running as well. And they're, they're things that I enjoy. And I think I've spent a lot of time trying to find hobbies that I can do that I can convert into money, which puts more pressure on them. So I thought one day I did a taxidermy course thinking, great, this could be something, this could be something unique that not many people do. And then I did it and I'm like, no, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> but what a great discussion point on your CV. You're a taxidermist. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. But, but I mean, so let's look at what you're doing. So the, the running, fantastic for your mental health and for yeah, frustration. That's exactly it, yeah. And... Um, and and it's very interesting what you said. You said, I spend a lot of time thinking about stuff and looking at stuff. And there, there's no substitute for just doing stuff. Mm. Now, I'm completely the opposite end of the spectrum, which would make me a lousy accountant because I just do stuff without thinking about it, you know, and then live with the consequences, which often can be quite dire. Um I did, for example, give up a job that I'd been doing for two years, which was paid, paying reasonably well to do something completely different. I have never, ever regretted it. But the first four or five years was hard, mm. you know, um, I, to set up a business. I gave up an incredibly well-paying job with a lot of status. And the first year, I every day I thought I'd made a mistake. But in the long term, it was fine. And I think we're talking about the long term. H how old are you? 33. So yes, it is a long term. You thing. are not old. Believe me, you are not old. And uh, something we say a lot on this podcast is, you're, God help us, you'll be working till you're 70. I know. I, so, that's, that's what's in my mind. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, and again, don't feel you have to do everything right now, mm. you know. And there's a lot to be said, I think, sometimes. I, I've met loads of people who work in a job that um, it, it gives them a very good standard of living, when they go home at six o'clock, they can leave the job and then they can have a very fulfilling personal life. They can do hobbies which are not under any pressure to translate into money. Mm. They do it because they just love it and they meet like-minded like people. And I think that's absolutely fine. And certainly some of these other jobs that we've been talking about, you don't finish at six. Mm -hmm. No. How pressurised is the job you're in now? I know it's you, you, you're working for an NGO, aren't you? Yeah. But unfortunately, it's not quite as sort of fulfilling as you thought it might be. Yeah. Um, but how pressurised is it? Are you are you going in every day thinking like oh, I just is it is it more that you're doing a job you feel like you don't want to do anymore, or is it just the environment is horrible? What what is it that is not it, working? It is a job that I don't want to do anymore. But I mean, when I did start this job, it was quite pressured. Um, but I think now I've got to the point where it's kind of settled down. But I've got really bored there now because oh, I'm doing okay. the same thing day in, day out. Mm. Um, and I did have another part time job alongside it that was in just in a different business. Um, and I got bored in that as well because it, it was doing the same thing, but in a different area. So I, I kind of deduced that it is the actual thing that I'm doing that needs mm. to change. And what, where, what would the next step on the career ladder be for you if you were to stay in accounting? 
I mean, I guess it would be a higher position, but that would come with more responsibilities and... Still boring. It would be boring, <laughs> but I don't want the extra responsibility for something I'm not enjoying. Yeah. Yeah. But the only thing is, as the more senior you become, I mean, I'm sounding as though I'm an expert on accountancy and I absolutely am not. <laughs> But the more senior you become, in my experience, knowing people in this field, the more interesting it gets because the less process you have to do. Mm. Someone else does the month ends and all that sort of stuff. What you do is help to make managers, for example, make better decisions, more strategic decisions about what they're doing. Mm. And like a lot of jobs, the beginning bits of it are are often quite dull but if you have a an end game if you have a focus on where you want to be that can make all the drudge work acceptable particularly if it's a job where at six o'clock you can close the door and go home and have a life which a lot of jobs are not like have you ever liked any aspect of the job like do you care about doing a good job for example yes i mean i'm a perfectionist a lot of the time so i will do it the best I can yeah um which is I mean recently I found it suffering a little bit that I've just I've got my list of things that I need to do and I'm just not ticking them off I'm kind of my mind's wandering off okay but that that's interesting about being a perfectionist Mm. because I would say that some of that quality is probably what makes you a very good accountant there used to be you're you're far too young for this but there used to be um, in Monty Python a sketch about accountants being really boring and I think sometimes as well that's part of it that Mm. that's the image that that job has that sometimes affects the way we feel about it do you think that that's a fair thing to say? I think that is a part of it I think in my head when I was at school an accountant just sounded like a really boring profession to be in and I have that fear as well like when you meet people and you go oh hello I'm an accountant and they're just gonna go oh I need to go and meet someone else. (laughs) A lot of this is about how you frame it and what you say and how you introduce yourself so you know I'm thinking of of, you know well I, I make sure businesses run effectively you know I make sure people are in profit yeah or, you know so a lot of this is about the narrative that we have and the mm. stories that we tell our, mm. ourselves about a job I think it's it's listening to you I feel like I feel like the right kind of accounting job not forever but for now would be a good next step positive next step you know you're, yeah. bo- you're bored in your job now you're, you're not ticking off the to-do list because you just frankly can't be bothered anymore and for a perfectionist that's big news right yeah. so it's thinking about getting the right kind of accounting job in the right kind of industry. So looking into how you do that. Are there a kind of a networks that you're part of, like accounting networks, whether in London or or near where you live, that you can kind of tap into? Just those kind of business card exchange type events and things. There, I'm. I'm not. I've not joined one, but that could be a really good option. It feels like meeting other people who yeah. might just say, "Yeah, I was like you. You know, beating my head against the brick wall, but then I started working for this company. I don't even feel like I." I'm an accountant anymore. I feel like I'm part of the team and I'm part of a small business maybe that is creative, you know, working in whatever it is, a, a record label. I mean, my background's the music industry and I have some, you know, great friends who work in the business side of the music industry, you know, and they have a great old time. But I feel like that maybe that could be the next step whilst also having a look at the craft things on the side and I mean you know, there's a lot to be said for just booking yourself on a course right and just doing something on a Saturday morning that gets you up and out of bed and gets you using your hands again and your your creative mind but I feel like it has to run in tandem with a change to your current job I don't think yeah. you can you can you can't stay in that job can you no so I think the important thing is to rethink 
the accountancy thing, just to reframe it. I think Reese absolutely right. I think the present job that you're in, no disrespect to them, but it does sound like it's sapping your soul. It's not very joyful. But I don't think that being an accountant has to be joyless. I think you have to write, find the right company to work in that really appreciates your skills, maybe also allows you to make a few more decisions and not just get sucked into the process part. So looking at job description for different types of accountancy might be really good. But that skill that you've worked long and hard to attain, I think is worth gold. And I, I don't want to throw that skill out and start from scratch. And particularly because of what you're saying, the consequences of that are you know, that you might have to take a big dip in salary if you did that. And that would, you know, everybody likes a decent standard of living to be able to go on holidays, not to worry about the gas bill, you mm. know. So I think there's a, there's another way of doing this. And, and also, I want you not to be so isolated and to find other people who've made that sort of, I really don't want to say journey, but you know what I mean, <laughs> have made that sort of um, leap. leap. That's a much better word. Thank you. I think in the short term, let's try and make Sundays a happier day for you. Yes, definitely. Right? Something needs to happen on a Sunday that makes you not think about the rest of the week and it's just a, a nice day. Yes, definitely. <laughs> well, Caroline, thank you for coming in and sharing your career crisis with us. And I hope you feel a bit better. Yes, I do. Thank you very much okay. for inviting me in. My career crisis. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Well, that was Caroline, who's unhappy at work because she doesn't feel like her job represents who she is. Well, another common cause for workplace misery is feeling like you aren't managed well or that you don't get on with someone in the team you're working with. If this rings true to you, stick around because I'm joined now by Richard Boston, psychologist and author of The Boss Factor, a book about how to create more trusting partnerships in the workplace and a happier environment. Welcome, Richard, to My Career Crisis. Hello, thanks for having me. Well, it's a real pleasure. Um, your book fell on my desk and really resonated with me, this idea of um, 
manipulating is not the right word. (laughs) Definitely not. (laughs) You've already told me that it's not the right word. But I think when I saw that, I thought, aha, I wish I'd had this book 10 years ago when I um, was being bossed by a a particularly bad boss. But I think this isn't a book about how to deal with bad bosses, is it? This is about advice for people who can kind of work their boss in such a way that it's advantageous to your career, right? So it's like you don't have to just be a boss to be a leader, to have ideas, to um, have a notion of how to take a business forward. You can do that if you are part of the team, but you also have a boss that you're working to. So I love this idea that that you, well, the beginning of the book that you go into about why you wrote the book, um, which was because of a comment that someone made to you that kind of made yeah. you quite angry. Can you just tell us about that first? Um, so there was a business school that I was at a few years ago, and there was a professor who was speaking to a, a whole room full of people on a leadership program. And I respect him enormously. And he's he's absolutely fantastic. But this one thing that he said, which I think was just really a kind of warming up moment as we came back into the room, was that, you know, this is a leadership program. If you want the followership program, it's it's next door. And of course, it wasn't. There was no next door. There was no followership program. And frankly, I don't think I've ever come across a program that's designed on developing people's ability to follow other people well. And I think even the whole nature of the word follower has really negative connotations. It's just, it's lemmings, isn't it, really? Yeah. Yep. So I kind of wanted to get away from that. And what I, really the subtitle of the book is around managing up for mutual gain. So it's it's not manipulating. Well, it's it's, <laughs> it's hard not to use the word it manipulating. It's really hard not to use the word manipulating. So if, I, if you think of, so I've got a friend who's an osteopath. If I go and see her, she does manipulate my body, but she's not doing it for her, just her selfish reasons for herself. She's doing it to help me. And and the idea with this book really is that it's it's the ability to really have an adult to adult relationship and to take responsibility for that relationship, for your role in it, but also to think, well, actually, there may be things that I don't like about what's going on. What can I do about that? What's causing my boss to be use quite a lot of swear words, I think, on the show. So what's (laughs) causing my what's causing my boss to be an asshole? (laughs) Um, Because your boss is going to be the hero in their own narrative yeah they'll have reasons there'll be a logic behind their behavior so the idea really is to try and help us see that and look at the look at the circumstances from different points of view and then come up with ways of moving forward in a healthy way a useful way I think there's there's a change there's there's hopefully a, a kind of shift in mindset these days where people are less uh, kind of quaking before the boss kind of thing, which I certainly was 10 or 15 years ago. When I was younger, starting out in my career, very intimidated by people who'd been in the business for a long time, um, who had lots of experience, and rightly so. I mean, you know, that that's fine. They've obviously earned a certain reputation. But I think that as a result, I was quite timid. I allowed myself to be bossed in a certain way that, that really wasn't very healthy for me. And I hope that people these days are a little bit more savvy when it comes to their boss and how they can, well, the kind of rights that they have in a way. I think that, you know, you, you don't have to let your boss treat you like shit, right? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, although at the same time, I've worked with some people who are, they're really quite senior themselves. And I remember talking to one guy, coaching with this guy, and he was, um, so he, we, he talked about his relationship with people in positions of power. And so the people who are even more senior than him in a very big organization. And I said, well, what does this relationship with this particular senior person remind you of? You know, what 
what pattern is this? And he sat there and then his, this kind of, his eyes rolled. And he just said, oh, it's my dad. And so he'd built up this pattern early in life about how to deal with authority figures, particularly male ones. And, you know, even though he was in his 40s, he's repeating this same kind of acquiescent, um, oh, no, I can't, you know, I'm timid. Timid, you know, yeah. Even, even going yeah. timid yeah. for someone who's paid a lot of money. Um, so I'm trying to really help people look at, okay, so what am I bringing to this? Mm. Um, yeah, that's that. That for me is a, a big feature in the book, and there's a lot of questions. So I guess the thing here will be I might come back to you rather than with tips. I'll try and give some tips. But there may also be, well, maybe you could think about this. Maybe answer this question for yourself. I think, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm halfway through and I've, I've already been answering some of those questions. Um, but let's let's talk in particular. We've just heard from Caroline and we've heard Caroline's story. And I want to talk in particular about her situation first, um, which is she's working as part of the finance, finance team at an NGO. Um, she's how could she kind of be part of that team, do you think, in a in a better, more positive way in terms of working to her direct boss, but then also the bosses of the organisation that maybe she's set aside from because she's part of the finance team in this NGO. So yeah, it sounds, it does sound like a challenging place to be. And I think certainly I remember times, thankfully earlier in my life, um, not recently, where I've had times where I've been there on a Sunday just thinking, oh God, I've got to go back to this. I remember living in Australia when I first had first got a full-time job again having been backpacking for ages and I did I started on Thursday and did Thursday Friday and then on Sunday I was already feeling the injustice of the world that I already had to go back to work even though that work was fine and I remember a job where I literally went out to the phone box at I think coffee I don't think it was even lunchtime on my first day and went to the agency who put me there and said you have to get me out of here and they said no <laughs> so I went back and made the most of it I think there's a Different things that Caroline could have available to her. I mean, one is the obvious option of, well, do something else. Um, but sometimes you can achieve so much more by making the most of the situation that you're in. Now, one of the places I go to first is really thinking, okay, what is it? What is it that I want to get out of life and work? And um, the you know, one of the things in the book, the starting point actually, is having a vision for yourself. And I know we often say, oh, it's the leaders who are supposed to have the vision. But actually, I think as individuals, having a sense of where do I want to go? Who do I want to be? And so really thinking, you know, what am I about? Uh, if possible, looking at well, what are my values in life? You know, what's really important to me in terms of the person that I want to be and the difference that I want to make? And not everyone is going to be in a position to make a huge world-changing difference, even in an NGO. Um, but just thinking, well, you know, who can I be? What do I aspire to? You talk about true north in the book, which I yeah. quite like. I haven't heard that expression before, but this idea of what is your true north. Yeah, it's not my expression. Oh, right. Uh, it's a guy called Bill George. Okay. Um, who's fantastic. Props, Bill. Yeah. Um, but it's a, I think it's really great. You have this sense of what is my true north? And then other decisions can fall out of that. You, know, you get into a dilemma and you can think, oh, which of these routes takes me towards my true north? And, and is it important to write this down? Um. I think it helps to write it down. In a silver pen and then you put it under the bed, right? That's yeah, what you I do. Yeah, I really go yeah? for that. But okay. that works for some people. <laughs> um, you know, all these, whatever works for you. I think the thing with writing it down is it requires discipline. So you could think, if you just think about it, it often stays a bit of an amorphous blob. Whereas if you actually write something down and you go, oh, hang on a second, that doesn't really read very well. Or if it's really long and you couldn't remember it. Well, if you can't remember it, it's clearly not that important. 
and it's also not going to help you make decisions. So I think something that really is quite crisp is really helpful. Um, I think the um, this idea of you know being authentic, so going to work and feeling that you're being your true self, your best self as well, where the two are actually not always the same. Um, that's really important because it takes a lot of energy to turn up and pretend to be something you're not. Uh, you've effectively got two jobs if you're doing that, and it's definitely easier to have one. Um, the thing I was thinking as well in response to Caroline's situation is about responsibility, and there may be different ways of kind of skinning the role that she's in. So first thing that sprang to mind was um, what else could she be taking responsibility for? Yeah, could she start by um, building up the relationship between finance and other parts of the organisation, for instance? So rather than doing all the financy stuff, there's a bit of an ambassadorial element to it. You know, as you're making friends and raising the profile of finance as something that's useful rather than something that people put up with as a necessary evil, which is how most people treat finance in organisations. Make spreadsheets fun. Well, that's a tough ask. But, <laughs> you know, at least, you know, you can show how finance is there to actually make the business work. Sure. And it's the human face of it as well, isn't yeah. it? Like making those relationships so people aren't, like you say, sort of dreading the, the finance bit of their jobs, as most people do, I imagine. Yeah. So if you're not in finance, you generally dread the finance bits. Yes. Um, and some people in finance love it. And some people, like Caroline, I guess, are just like, well, I did this because it seemed like the thing to do. And now I'm not so happy with where I'm at. Yeah. So there's a kind of what can you take additional responsibility for that uses the relationship skills and the interest in relationships and other interests. Mm. Um, it takes that forward. I think the question about access to other bosses in the organisation is a can be a tricky one. I mean, it sounds like she's got quite a good relationship with her boss. One of the things to always watch out for is that bosses, we all have a certain need for control, right? And if a boss feels like you're going around them to other people, that can be quite threatening. So a key ingredient there is trust. So is there trust in the relationship so that they are happy for you to have other relationships with senior people or do they need it all to come through them? And if there's a good relationship and there can be some good conversations between Caroline and her boss, then I think actually there's quite a lot of potential for saying, well, actually, I'd quite like to explore other bits of the organisation to do additional things. I think you might have to say, depending on the relationship, you know, I'm going to do this kind of a bit on my own time to start with, rather than taking away from the responsibilities that I already have to you, because that'll be an initial worry. It's like, well, hang on a second, are you saying you're going to go part-time for me? In which case you won't get stuff done. But I think if you can manage that and have a good conversation with a boss who is kind of on your side and thinking that they want the best for you, then there's real opportunity. Um, and I think there's possibly a you know space for being a bit courageous as well. So saying, which I really do want to try. They want to experiment with things, being prepared to push back a bit, but also to challenge yourself in this situation to be, you know, what can I be that's a bit more bold than what I'm doing at the moment? Must be in my fairly large nutshell. I like it. It's a good nut. Very good. Um, I We talk a lot on this podcast about interviews and the importance of interviews. Uh, we talk a lot about interview technique and, and getting yourself in front of the interview panel, you know, is, is the, the hardest, in some ways the hardest part, and then selling yourself on, on the interview panel. But you talk in your book about choosing your leader, this idea that you somehow could have a hand in in, in choosing 
that boss that's going to yeah. maybe work for you. And obviously that's easier said than done. A job is a job. I backlash against that. Did you? <laughs> yeah. What, are people just like, you can't do that? That's like, shit. Fuck that, I can't change my, I can't choose this. It just happens to me. Um, I mean, you do. Often people just feel like their boss is imposed on them, don't they? Yeah, and sometimes they are. Yeah. But it's funny, a few years ago, someone said to me, and I think they meant it more spiritually, to be honest, but they were a psychologist as well. And they said about how you choose your parents. Yeah, so I think in some respects, I think it's true. I think, you know, I think they were possibly talking about some baby spirit floating around. There's definitely a silver pen involved in that conversation. But actually, I think in some respects, we psychologically, we do choose our parents because we choose the the way we think about our parents. We choose our relationship, decisions we make about it, the, the caricatures we make of our parents. And I think we do the same for our bosses. You know, to a certain extent, the... The way you think about your boss is partly your choice. It's partly their behavior. It's partly your interpretation of those behaviors. So, so I, how do you control that? Control's a difficult thing. Mm. I think you can manage it. Okay. Um, I think, I mean, there are practical things. I'll come back to practical things about choosing your boss. But I think in terms of your mindset around your boss, and that, that is one thing that I talk about in the book, is the when I talk about mindset, a helpful way of looking at it, I think, is to think about what are my beliefs assumptions and expectations here so what what are my beliefs about this boss there's someone I well a few people I worked with a while ago who were part of a team and they were all complaining about the boss and I didn't know the boss as well as I knew them but I did know the boss a bit and there were lots of complaints about um, being over controlling making um, making decisions and then unmaking them which was then embarrassing for them in leading their people because they'd make a decision themselves and then be told, no, you can't do that. Um, and they they felt really quite angry and frustrated and disempowered by this person. But they were seeing it all from their own point of view. And I was thinking, well, okay, so what is it, what's going on for the boss? Where's this behaviour coming from? Is it their normal behaviour, just how they do things? Or is it actually something to do with the context in which they find themselves? And... The more conversations I had with that team and around the business, the more it seemed to be that actually the boss was under an enormous amount of pressure, was quite afraid of what was happening to them and in their their world, and was trying to then exert control in order to feel a bit more in control. Um, I feel like once I was in India and someone gave me a crocodile, baby crocodile to hold, and then they walked off and I was left in this zoo like with an open space, wasn't even in a room, holding this baby crocodile that was wriggling like hell. And my response was to squeeze it a little bit tighter, to hold on tighter. So it wriggled more. It just got tighter and tighter until I realised that this was not going to work. And then I let it go. And it ran off around the zoo and everyone was panicking all over the place. <laughs> the irony being that he went and caught it and then gave it back to me. Yeah, but I think, which is ridiculous. I was clearly <laughs> incompetent at looking after this thing. But um, this boss was clutching tighter and tighter onto control because they felt so out of control themselves mm. and I think once you start to empathise with that it doesn't mean you forgive the behaviour but you start to realise okay what's causing this behaviour so therefore what can I do to help this person feel less out of control so that then they can relax the grip a bit and so that's that's the whole thing about you know managing your own attitude to your boss and choosing your boss in that way but I think there are other times when you know, you're faced with a really difficult situation with a boss and the decision is, well, 
do I choose not to have this boss? Do I choose to leave? And that's really tough. And I think it is the, the kind of nuclear option, which I guess the politics these days has fairly big connotations. <laughs> but um, there are other alternatives before that. You, know, you, you can change and move out to another environment. You can try and change the relationship with your boss. And if you're looking for a job and you're faced with you know, a potential boss, I think there are things you can do to try and gauge what's this person going to be like to work with. And as desperate, and I've, we've all been in situations where we're trying to get a job and we're just thinking, I need to win this. And loads of other people want it. But there are times when you just got to think, I really need to make a clever decision here rather than just grab it. Um, you know, maybe it's understanding at least what I'm going into. You know, if you're going to get married to someone, hopefully you would you know, check them out a bit first. Um, understanding what are the things that might cause this relationship to be challenging. And what can I ask for at the front end that will make it less challenging? And that it's okay to do that, isn't it? I think rather than being in in that interview on the back foot the whole time, just trying to sell yourself to them, try and ascertain the information you need to know about whether you want to get married to them. Because it is like that intense relationship, isn't it? You probably spend more time with them than you will with the person you marry, at least in a short period of time. Um, And I mean, that's, for me, that's key, that understanding, that negotiation. And I think... As long as you don't seem too cocky in an interview, if you're if you're on kind of the same level as the person that's across the other side of the table, then they kind of respect that. And actually, you tend to come across better than if you're trying to sell yourself mm-hmm. to start with. And they're always, you know, people always say, what questions have you got for us? And they always expect some kind of bland nonsense that you just made up to impress them. But what if you ask them questions that were about, you know, what's it going to be like to be led by you? You know, what things do you need from the person who's reporting into you? What are the dynamics in the team at the moment? And, you know, what does that mean we need? What are the pressures on you that you need your team to help you with? So if it's too adversarial and too kind of, I'm trying to find out what's wrong with you, like you're some kind of freak, then it's going to be problematic in an interview. But if it feels like a genuine, we're going into a partnership here, what's the best way to make this work, then most bosses would go for that. You'd have some that thought, oh, you're a bit uppity, but frankly, you might not want to work with them anyway. Exactly, right. Um, we uh, we put my boss into Google this morning, um, <laughs> and the third search result was my boss hates me, and then the fifth one was my boss made me cry. You know how it comes up on, yeah, on yeah, Google. Yeah. So these results, I think, are interesting. My boss hates me. My boss makes me cry. Everybody has a story of when they worked for the nightmare boss who maybe they, thinking of it in this way, possibly didn't manage the situation well. But sometimes we're not equipped at, at, at t- points in our career to to manage a boss as well as try and do a job. Yeah. Um, and we have an email from Sally who says, my boss hates me. We told people you were coming on the podcast. She's got in touch. She says... This is interesting because actually I recognise this kind of behaviour from bosses I've worked with in the past. My boss is noticeably different with me compared to the rest of the team. He'll be chatty and jokey to others, but never me and will always give me the brush off if I try to make conversation. I can deal with this, but the main problem is how he treats me compared to my counterpart. She works closely with another member of the team. They share the same job title, but they couldn't be more different. She says she's hugely incompetent and it's known by all of the team. So you've essentially got these two people working in the same role. One of them isn't very good. One of them is very good. Mm. Um, 
she says, I'm over-experienced for the role I'm in, but can't move up until someone leaves. So I'm given all the jobs the boss does, which is obviously high-level stuff, but I really enjoy the work and would never complain about it. Um, the trouble is the boss constantly heaps praise onto my counterpart for successfully completing tasks like putting the post in the correct trays. I can't believe this. This is nuts. Whereas I've never had him comment on my work in any way and certainly never been praised for it. Should I just ask my boss if he has a problem with me? What would you advise? Mm. Because it's kind of confrontational already, isn't it? It is a bit confrontational. You've got a problem with me. And then it's kind of forced then to say probably no, um, which may not be true. Um, If I try and put myself in the boss's shoes, then I'm thinking, okay, so what's going on for the boss? Um, They've got one person who sounds very competent by her own description um, and is doing high-level work, which possibly means that they're a bit of a threat to the boss in some ways so there may be things where you know if she can't move up until somebody moves over well the only person well the most obvious person for that is the boss so if the boss is not ready to move up what happens to the boss you know because there is I think there will be that sense of a bit of a threat in this Um, and probably they're also thinking well I've got this person who is really quite high maintenance um, who isn't doing the job very very well Maybe there are some issues for that person that, was it Sally, mm-hmm. is not um, aware of. So maybe there the boss is also trying to manage something that's really quite difficult for them and trying to give praise in order to keep someone motivated because maybe there are issues about not being able to get rid of them or maybe there's a fear of getting rid of them. Um, so just trying to think of it from those perspectives to try and get, okay, so what could have caused this behaviour in the boss that is not about our relationship. Yeah, that's the first thing to go to. What else? Because we often, we take so much stuff in work life as personal, mm-hmm. and the vast majority of it isn't. It's just stuff that's happening. It's got nothing to do with us, but we feel it because we're you know we're the hero in our story. And so, how do you then broach the conversation if you've exhausted all the kind of what are the alternative situations that could be causing this? I. I'd imagine it is quite hard to say without knowing the boss and what they're like, but some kind of conversation that doesn't start with, have you got a problem with me? Yes. Um, But could be a broader conversation about career aspirations. um, What is it that the boss needs from them? I think if you're demanding more of a boss, generally they all feel slightly threatened because most people in work feel that they've already got a lot on their plate so the easiest way in is to come up with something that means you are starting the conversation by potentially taking something off their plate that they would like taken off their plate so you're making their life easier rather than coming in with a new problem you know it doesn't have to be that you're offering a solution to the problem that is your relationship but if you start with something that you know that they're going to see as a positive you know, a thing that's getting taken off of their to-do list that they want to be taken off their to-do list that doesn't feel like a threat that you're taking off their to-do list, you're taking over. And that's going to be sensitive with this one because it really wouldn't surprise me if there is some kind of tension in the boss's mind about this, you know, this uppity person who does all the stuff that, you know, is kind of part of my job. So that leaves me thinking, what am I supposed to do? And there's all these more difficult things above me that I could now be doing because she's freed me up, but I'm afraid of them, so I don't want to do them. So this amazingness down here is terrifying and it's horrible. And um, if she was crapper, 
then life would be easier. Um, and it's, it's kind of working through that. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And I'm wondering if she needs to broach this subject of the job title, because that seems to be the real sticking point, that right. she has the same job title as this other person. Potentially, one thing she could offer the boss as a positive thing is a, is a change in her job title, maybe? Or would that just Possibly. be stressful? I don't know. But it would, know. it would obviously make things better for her. She'd feel... Like she's not in this on at the same level as this other person who doesn't do the work without quite saying yeah. it. So I can see it working for Sally mm. to change a job title. So there's a, I'm I'm not like that other person. Sort of redefining their job description yeah. and offering a new job title or something. Maybe it, maybe it would be rather because a job title is a status. Mm. Thing. It's very important these days. People get offered job titles over raises, don't yeah. they? So, but because it's a status thing, in Sally's eyes, it will be a really positive thing mm. in the boss's eyes it could be just another headache mm. so a clarification around the responsibilities of the role um, and the kind of objectives for the role that does differentiate the two people that's you know her and her counterpart that could be a really helpful way to go mm. the job title bit i would say because this could be about a control piece anyway and um, the job title piece would be better to kind of just emerge Mm. from it rather than being something pre-baked that Sally's going in wanting because mm. a change in job title is something that you want yeah so it's another ask so it kind of goes against some of that earlier stuff doesn't mean you shouldn't get it and it, I think it'd be very good to have that clarity around the different roles but really thinking about so what is it what are my needs that aren't getting met here and what are the healthiest ways to meet them rather than knee-jerk ways to get them met Mm -hmm. And as I'm doing it, what do I need to think about with the needs of this other less experienced counterpart so that I don't then create more mess by approaching this in this way and making her feel worse? Mm -hmm. I, 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 she called the email, my boss hates me. And just moving on from, from Sally's story, I think we've all felt maybe at some point in our lives that our boss doesn't like us or somehow we have a personality clash that's yeah. very very common um and i wondered if you could ask answer this in, in, in from two points of view first of all how do you cope when you think your boss really doesn't like you on a personal level and you yeah. you really struggle with that um and you feel like they're making decisions based on the fact that they don't like you and also from a boss's point of view when you are a boss and you really don't like someone in your team how do you negotiate around that and how you treat them and try not to make that obvious in the in your dealings with them yeah because oh, you know we're all human and, and working in an office is personalities working together so maybe from both angles there how do you cope with that I mean I I've definitely worked with a boss who I thought didn't like me and I'm fairly good people person so I'm quite good at sort of working the room and make, figuring out everybody and figuring out how I should play them but I think this boss sussed that out about me and saw that actually I was quite a good team player and kind of didn't really like that about me because I got on with, with everybody, uh, whereas she was quite prickly and had real issues with certain people. So she didn't like the fact that I was like the UN in the middle of it all with everybody sort of talking to me and all of these things. You know what it's like politics yeah. in, a, in an office. There was only there was a team of, of about 10 of us. Um, so, I mean, I never I never approached her. I never talked to her about it, but she definitely made decisions about my career. I was freelance at the time that were bad for me, that could have been good for me. And she definitely shut down a few avenues that could have potentially opened and wow. been quite nice that I know she shut down because of weird things that you've talked about already about being slightly threatened or whatever yeah. it was. So uh, there's a few things that spring to mind for me around that, from this, you know, that colourful description, really. One is 
um, there was, <laughs> we've always got to do, you've got to look inside, right? Because there was a, a what, a, a guy who was a client become a friend who said to me, he's got a three asshole rule, which is that if you meet three assholes in a row, it's not them, it's you. <laughs> yeah, so first of all, check, well, who else, what other people haven't liked me? Yeah, or have appeared to not like me, what did they have in common? And therefore, what does that mean for the kind of relationships that I'm generally finding challenging? Uh, that's one thing, I think, to think about. Another is there's a really interesting turn of phrase that you use when you describe yourself, which is that you're really good at sussing people out and working out how to play them. <laughs> yeah. It's true, I am. I'm good at so, doing that. Yeah, so the word manipulation comes back mm -hmm. on. So you might be really good at that, and lots of people will appreciate it. But standing back from afar, your boss may have felt firstly threatened by it because you've got a skill that she, by the sounds of it, didn't have or hadn't developed as well. And also she could look at that as, well, this is manipulative. You know, you're acting differently to different people, which actually is necessary, uh, but actually you're playing people. And so there could be a values thing for her around that. Uh, which would mean that should be quite difficult for her to get past if she saw you as doing something that contravened her values. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the... There are a number of different frameworks for looking at personality, and I think anything that helps you get an understanding of your personality preferences and someone else's is brilliant for that kind of situation because you can understand, well, actually, we speak slightly different language. So that's why we have this personality clash. You know, there are certain things that or certain ways I will see the world that are completely different to how you'll see the world. And if I can understand the difference, then I can actually give some attention to how you see the world and try and meet those needs as well. It doesn't mean that I have to just roll over and do things the way you want them done, but at least I'm thinking about what's going on, your lens on the world, rather than, go, it's like going over to France. My French isn't very good, right? I, I can get by. But you go over to France and you're ordering your sausage, egg and chips. You know, you're full on British accent. And if they don't understand you, you just order sausage, egg and chips a bit louder. It's the same thing. You know, you've got to speak the language. And then even if you speak it not incredibly well, people are going to listen better. And you're going to create a better connection. The third thing around that, my boss doesn't like me. Hate is a very strong word. My grandmother would not approve. Um, is <clears throat> the often these personality clashes are not actually to do with personality. They're not even to do with the individuals. What's often happening is that each person is representing something that needs representing. So, for instance, you get a clash in a team between people who are, well, the person who's always talking about money and profit and the person who's always talking about the people that the team's supposed to be looking after. Or to go back to Caroline's example, you know, the people who are benefiting from the NGO work that they're doing. Now, they, those two people might have gravitated towards those two issues because of their personality originally. But what generally happens is that they then become kind of, they get left with that responsibility for that particular topic. Everyone else steps back from it, so no one talks about money anymore, only the person who started talking about money. And... They just leave this person to it and they become this weird caricature of the money person. Whereas they do care about the people, but every time they talk about money, 
this other person talks about people, so they feel that that's covered by the passion the other person has. And actually it's quite annoying because that other person just tr only wants to talk about people. So I think sometimes we're trying to work out the, what is it that we're carrying responsibility for that's come into conflict rather than how are we in a relationship in conflict. And actually should we have other people in the team who are also representing these different needs that the team has in order to do a good job? So there's a few different things I don't know how well I've answered your question. I want to know if you are a boss or if you've ever been a boss. I've had <laughs> I've had responsibilities in a boss sense. <laughs> what um, the hell does that mean? <laughs> and I, well, I, I, I don't like the word boss. Um, yeah, I've been, I've had leadership responsibilities. Um, in fact, uh, my, my PA, Emma, is coming back on today. Um, and so, yeah, she could give you some pretty good insights into what I'm like <laughs> as a boss. I do my best. Um, I've made loads of mistakes in the past. Um, and some of these lessons, like the book is 10 lessons. Yes. Um, and I don't really like the word lessons, except if you understand that they are lessons that I've either learned myself or that I've learned through coaching like hundreds, actually more than hundreds of leaders who are trying to do a good job of being a boss and sometimes really struggling. What's the, what's the headline? Give us the headline. How, how are you a good boss? For, for someone who's listening who's a boss who may be thinking, geez, I let myself down a few times, you know, like you say, there are things I've done that maybe I regret. What, what would you give them as like a couple of headlines for, um, for being a good boss? What does it look like? So, there's, so the word, there's the word being and there's the word doing. So I think of kind of three things you need to do and three things you need to be. Okay. Um, so I know that's six and it's not a tidy headline. That's okay. <laughs> um, in the doing, you've got to attend to three what I call core disciplines. So one is around establishing direction. So working out and being clear on what is it that we're supposed to be doing as a in this relationship or as a team. And that, you know, some people will want to do that in quite a top-down dictatorial way. These days in our culture, that generally doesn't go down very well. So you may need to work with people and get a more collaborative direction. So that's the first one, direction. You need to attend to people's commitment. And a lot of that comes down to trust. So if you don't have trust in the relationship, it's harder to get commitment. If you don't have healthy challenge in that relationship, it's harder to get commitment. So bearing that in mind and thinking, well, how can I get these people to challenge me effectively so that they can then buy into what we're trying to do? Because if they don't 100% believe in it and they're sitting on five reasons why they don't believe in it and I won't hear them, they can't commit. They'd be an idiot to commit. And so direction, commitment, and building capacity. So if you really made sure that these people have got the resources, the right processes, the skills, all this stuff in place so that they can do the job, they're enabled to do it. Yeah, and those three, direction, commitment, capacity, that's the doing, I think, for me. And there's everything else that I've come across that's to do with doing kind of fits in there. And then you've got the being. Being for me is these three things, authentic, responsible, and courageous. So if you can be really authentic, you know, you're being the real you, you're building a, an authentic, genuine relationship with the people that you're working with. You are managing responsibilities effectively. So you take responsibility for what's your shit and your baggage. You don't hog all the responsibility because then you'll just collapse. You distribute it effectively in the team and you're courageous. So you're bold, 
you have the challenging conversations, you have great aspirations, and really importantly with courage, you are willing to challenge yourself, to challenge your ways of thinking, to challenge your assumptions, all these things, to be prepared to be wrong. Yeah, and those three, authentic, responsible and courageous, they're quite hard to do, and they're really hard to do all at the same time. Sometimes they get in each other's way, but they can be a virtuous triangle, because uh, I always put them in a triangle. Triangles are good. They, they, they're nice they to look good. at. Yes, I like triangles. A lot of the people that come on the career crisis and who we get, you know, communication from are people who are working in an office environment, um, who often aren't the boss, who are just trying to kind of manage their relationship with a team, manage a boss, get ahead, maybe quit. <laughs> you know, they're those yeah. kind of people who are just kind of going, ah, I don't know, help, you know. Um, if they are in that position and they're thinking, maybe I could make things better for myself here, what, what are the kind of headlines of what they could do? So I think the same principles actually apply um, to your situation when you think about your clients. But the key, probably a key thing for me is to think how, you know, think of this relationship as a teaming relationship. And um, so how can I make us both successful? How can I try and understand the other person? So really thinking about their needs, what beliefs, expectations and assumptions they're bringing, what's happening in their world. And that doesn't mean you have to sympathise with it. Yeah but empathising with it, understanding it, that is where you'll start to come up with the actions, the things that will make the difference. So I think for me it is about take responsibility for the relationship, own it in a way that doesn't mean they can't own it as well, understand them, and then good stuff starts to happen. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Richard Boston and for bringing donuts, which we're going to go oh, and eat now. Enjoy. Very exciting. This has been My Career Crisis. Thanks to Richard Boston for coming on and talking to us about his book, The Boss Factor, which is out now. And thanks to Caroline, our guest who was on with Sue a bit earlier in the episode. Do tell us what you think of the show by reviewing and rating us on iTunes and tell your friends. My Career Crisis is a Chalk and Blade and Rosina Sound production. We'll be back with more shows next week. 